Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Have you ever been the object of jealousy? Anybody ever been jealous of you? Has anybody ever been envious of you? Or has anybody ever hated you? Have you ever been the object of hate? Now, I suppose everybody goes through that to some degree. Children go through that kind of thing, even with their siblings. Teenagers go through that. But so do adults. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that if they hated me, they will hate you. The consequences can be devastating. The consequences of somebody hating you or being jealous of you can be downright cruel. As a matter of fact, uh, among teenagers, and that's the easiest way to illustrate it, they get teased and they get bullied. And you've heard the stories, as I have, that some of them are driven to suicide because of the, that, that kind of treatment they're getting from their peers. Or what happens when your life totally falls apart? I mean, the bottom drops out and everything goes wrong. And it goes wrong one thing after another until there's nothing left. I mean, nothing left. Well, all of those things describe a man in the book of Genesis called Joseph. What I want us to do is uh, begin his story. It's rather lengthy. We're going to look at the first episode. And all of the things I've just mentioned and more happened to Joseph. The question is, how did he handle it? Uh, How do you handle it when it happens to you? Well, join me in Genesis chapter 37, and let's see if we can answer those questions. Genesis chapter 37. I'm going to look at verse 2 to begin. Verse 2 says, this is the history of Jacob. Now, let me pause for a second. If you've been with me as we've been going through the book of Genesis, uh, episode by episode, you know that last time I spent a great deal of time talking about that little phrase, this is the history of. It appears 11 times in the book of Genesis. This is the 11th and last time it appears. And as I explained last time, it is referring to what happened to the person named And even beyond that, what happened to the descendants of that person? Now, we've been talking about Jacob for chapters way back in the mid-20s, chapters uh, of Genesis have we've been talking about Jacob. And now it tells us this is the history of Jacob, meaning, of course, as I've explained, what became of him and what became of his descendants. So in a sense... The rest of Genesis, all the way to chapter 50, is about Jacob. But the main focus is on one of his sons named Joseph. 
At any rate, this passage opens by telling us this is the history of Jacob. And then it immediately turns its attention to Joseph. Look at verse 2 again. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. So immediately, we turn our attention to Joseph. Now notice it says his brothers. Now you will remember that Jacob had several wives, not just one wife. And he had multiple children with these various wives. And so these were technically Joseph's half-brothers. And he's 17 years old at this time. So he's a teenager. And we are told in the latter part of that verse, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So here's what's going on. Uh, Joseph's one of the youngest, if not, I think, the youngest of the twelve. And they're out tending the flock and apparently not behaving themselves. Now, what they did, we don't know. We have no way of knowing, except it was bad enough for Joseph to go back and tell his fathers, you need to know what your sons are doing, and it's not all good. So, he's the tattletale. He goes back and tells his father, uh, my brothers aren't behaving themselves. Now look at verse 3. Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob. Remember, his name was changed to Israel. Loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. All right. Joseph's his favorite. Uh, They tell us you're not supposed to have favorites when you have children. Jacob had a favorite, and it was Joseph. And he made him this real expensive tunic of many colors. Now, that tunic was something like an overcoat or, or a jacket. Some of them came down to about the waist, and some of them came all the way to the ankles. Uh, Many colors indicates that this was a special kind of garment. And when he wore it, he stood out. So all of the brothers knew, we didn't get one of those. He got one of those, so we didn't get one of those. So they knew that their father had a favorite and it was Joseph. So, the scripture tells us in verse 4, when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. All right, the plot begins. They realize he's the favorite, and they hate him. The hatred is so apparent that they couldn't speak peacefully to him. Have you ever been in a situation where you couldn't talk civilly to each other? Sarcasm flew. There was tension in the relationship. That's what's going on. Joseph is now the object of simple hatred. The plot thickens. Look at verse 5. 
Then Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. Uh, (laughs) This is really interesting. Verse 6. And they said to him, uh, he said to them, Please hear the dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheave arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheave. And the brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or have indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for the dreams and for his words. He's just made the matter worse. He has a dream. Now they're working in the field, and these sheaves are something like wheat, and you know, they bind them up, and they got these little stacks around the field. And in his dream, one of these represents him, and that one stands up real tall. And all these other sheaves bow down before him. Can you imagine him telling that to his brothers that already hate him? So they hated him even more. They hated him because he was the favorite. And now they hate him because of the dream. What are you telling us? You're going to rule over us? Is that what you mean to tell us by this dream? Needless to say, they were not happy campers. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream. This one gets more interesting. And he told his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the stars bowed down before me. (laughs) He says, Look, I mean, the sun, the moon, and the stars bowed down before me. Wow. Uh, Verse 10 says, so he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. All right, he has a second dream. They're all bowing down to him. All the heavenly bodies are bowing down. The sun and the moon probably represent his mother and father. They got it. And all the stars are representing his brothers. And so they bow down to him. Everybody bows down to him. Now, what I want you to pick out of this passage is that several times it says they hated him. Verse 4. They hated him even more, verse 5. They hated him even more for his dreams, verse 8. They hated him. Then, verse 8 says, they were envious of him. So here is this fellow that is the object of all those things I mentioned at the beginning. Jealousy, envy, and hatred. Now, Before we go on, we need to probably ask the question, um, what's going on here? Is this kid an arrogant, spoiled brat that's rubbing it in on his brothers? 
Or is something else going on? Well, if, if this is all we had of the story, I don't think we'd have any way of knowing that. I don't know how we would answer that. But as you dig deeper into the book of Genesis and find out what happens to this fella and how he responds to what happens to him, I'm going to suggest that this is not arrogance on his part. Uh, matter of fact, the first word we have is he's reporting bad behavior to his father. That seems to indicate that he was an upright fella. He wasn't just tattling on them. He was telling his father the truth of what was going on. Uh, I don't think he did anything to become the favorite. Matter of fact, the text says he was the favorite of Jacob because he was the son of his old age. It wasn't his fault that he was the favorite. And what if your father makes you the favorite? What do you do? And these dreams weren't his fault. He's just relating what, uh, what, what, he, what he dreamed. So while some commentators tend to criticize him, I take the position of others that say, now this is a man of faith. Uh, this is a man of integrity and faith, and he's just the object of this treatment by his brothers that he really didn't earn. The text says they hated him because of his, his father loved him. They hated him because of his dreams. Well, he, uh, you know, he wasn't responsible for his dreams. He just had them. Now, let me say one more thing. Is it significant that these dreams are of sheaves? Uh, they're working in the field. What were those sheaves? They were the food stuff. Uh, I don't know, but something like wheat. And that's how you sustain life. It's You have food. Now, I think these stories, these dreams, become literally fulfilled later in his life. When there's a famine in the land, his brothers are starving to death, and he provides food for them. So the sheaves bowing down before him isn't at that point that he's dominating them or trying to master them or enslave them. It's they're bowing down and he's giving them food. He's a sheave giving them food. Now when you get to the sun and the moon and the stars, that indicates more of a power position. And as you know from reading the rest of the story, he ends up second in command in all of Egypt. He did have a position of authority, and they go trucking down to Egypt when the famine hits, and in that sense, he is over them, though he doesn't rub that in at that point. We'll get to all of that by and by as we go through the story of Genesis. This is what you need to know. These first 11 verses, first 10 verses, because we start verse 2, are telling us Joseph was hated. That's the point of this passage. And it goes downhill from there. Let's pick it up at verse 12. Then the brothers went to feed his father's flock in Shechem. Now, they lived in Hebron, by the way. And Israel, that is another name for Jacob, said to Joseph, Are not your brothers 
feeding the flock in Shechem. Come, I will send you to them. So he said to them, here I am. Then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him to the valley uh, and he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now, Shechem is a little south in Israel. Uh, Shechem is to the north. Uh, One commentator says it's 50 miles. Another says it's 60 miles. At any rate, this is not unusual at this time for a man that has large flocks and herds for some of his servants, in this case his sons, to take the flock and go wandering around to find a good pasture. And in the southern part of Israel, that's more barren, and they were moving toward more the central part where there was more fertile fields for the sheep and goats to feed. So the father simply says, they're out there somewhere in Shechem, uh, you know, 50, 60 miles up the road. Uh, go, go see what's happening. Go see how the brothers are doing. Go see how the flock is doing, and bring me back a report. So that's the commission that he gives them. All right. He takes off, verse 15. Uh, now a certain man, now by the way, verse 14 says he went to Shechem, so he made the trip. Verse 15 says, now a certain man found him there and uh, where he was, wandering in the field, and the man asked him, uh, what are you seeking? It was obvious you're looking for something. What are you looking for? And he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where They are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, and I hear them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went with his brothers and found them in Dothan. So he gets to Shechem, and they've already moved. Again, that part of the story is not unusual. If they ate all the grass or that field was no longer a fruitful, uh, a fruitful place for the sheep to feed, they would move on. So they moved up to Dothan. Um, so how far is that? By the way, I, this is a minor detail. You don't have to know this, but I found it interesting. Uh, one commentator said it was 12 miles. Another commentator said it was 17 miles. Another commentator said it was 20 miles, and a fourth commentator said it was 24 miles. So it was somewhere between 12 and 24 miles down the road. So he's already traveled 50 to 60. Uh, So he's uh, maybe, I don't know, 80, 75, 80 miles away from home. So he goes to Dothan. Uh, This story has always fascinated me because I grew up in Pensacola, Florida, which is in the panhandle of Florida. And if you go north from Pensacola, you cross the border pretty quickly, and you're in Alabama, and there is a place called Dothan, Alabama. And I've always wondered, I've never looked it up, I've always wondered if it was named after this city in the Bible, and it probably was. A lot of American cities have done that. All right, back to the passage. And let's pick it up at verse 18. Then when he saw afar, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near, they conspired against him, 
to kill him. You know? We got this guy 75 to 80 miles away from home. Now's our chance. We hate this guy, and now we're going to eliminate this guy. Then they said one to another, verse 19, look, this dreamer is coming. Obviously, a put down. Verse 20, come therefore, let us now kill him, cast him into some pit, and we shall say, some wild beast devoured him. We shall see what will become of this dreamer, or of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, he's one of the brothers, and delivered him, uh, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Oh, no, wait a minute, guys, you, you, you don't have to kill him. And Reuben said to them, uh, Shed no blood, but cast him into the pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him. So Reuben is trying to save his brother. Now notice the latter part of verse 22. The reason he did this is that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So Reuben is saying, don't kill him. Uh, throw him in a pit and let him be there. And he had every intention of going back and rescuing him and taking him back to his father. So not all these brothers are in on the plot. Verse 23, so it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped him of his tunic and the tunic of the many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat. Uh, talk about cold hearted. The treatment they gave him was cold and cruel. Uh, they throw him in a pit, and he doesn't even have water to drink, and they sit down to eat. Then, uh, verse 25, they lifted up their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gil Gilead, and the camels bearing spices, balm, myrrh, and on their way down to Egypt. So, Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brothers listen. Now, what got their attention was, wait a minute, we can make some money off of this? The key, the key word here is profit. We're going to sell him. We're going to pocket the money. They like that. Verse 28, then the Mennonites, traders, passed by. So the brothers pushed Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and said to the Ishmaelites and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So, they didn't kill him. They sold him to a slave. Now, put yourself in Joseph's place for just a minute. What, was he, what did he do? There's no indication he did anything wrong. He's just simply obeying his father. He goes trucking off to do what his father told him to do, but because of the hatred of his brothers, 
He gets sold into slavery, and this is only the beginning of his trouble. So he's now sold as a slave. Verse 29, then Reuben turned, returned to the pit, and Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. Now Reuben is the one that didn't want him killed and intended to go back and rescue him. Remember that? So now he goes back, and he's not there. Now, in the ancient world, when you, in the Bible, when you tore your clothes, that was a sign of deep grief. He's grieving that his brother is missing, not having a clue as to what happened to him at this point. So verse 30 says, he returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more. Where shall I go? What do I do? He's gone. Do I go look for him back at Shechem? Do I go back to Hebron? Do I go talk to the father? Do I look around Dothan? He's not in the pit. What are we going to do? He's almost panicked over the missing brother. Verse 31, and they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors And they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Notice carefully what they say. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Talk about shrewd. They didn't say, Hey, we found... Remember the original idea was that they'd kill him and they'd say some wild beast ate him? Well, they didn't say... That, they didn't say Joseph got attacked by a wild beast and and we found his uh, tunic and here it is. They didn't do that. They asked a question. And the question was, do do you recognize this? Well, of course he's going to recognize this. But they didn't say, is this the tunic of our brother? They said, is this the tunic of your son? So everything they say is just an indication of their intense dislike for Joseph. Now, verse 33, and Jacob recognized it and said, it's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn into pieces. Now, they didn't tell him this. He jumped to that conclusion. He decided that that's what was going on. So Jacob tore his clothes, verse 34, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. I'm sure you've heard of the weeping in sackcloth and ashes. They pour ashes on their head and sackcloth, which was a rough thing against the body. And this was part of the grieving process they went through in biblical times. And so he did it many days. In verse 35 he says, And all of his sons and all of his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I'll go to my grave mourning my son. Thus the father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain 
of the guard. Now, that last verse is introducing to us what's going to happen to Joseph next. But we'll get to that next time. Right now, I want to just pause and say, what is going on in this chapter? The story is really pretty straightforward and very simple. Because of their hatred, they sold their brother into slavery and deceived their father. That's sort of the sum of what's going on in this chapter. Now, if you have been listening as I've been going through Genesis, what's the key word I just said? They did what? They deceived their father, and their father was Jacob. Do you remember how he started his life? Deceiving his father. So the deceiver got deceived. He made his father think that he was Esau and got the birthright. Then he goes, and then his brother threatened to kill him, and he left town, and he goes and meets Laban, and then Laban deceives him, and he ends up having to work for him 14 years so he could marry the woman he loved. He got deceived into marrying the older sister when he thought he was marrying the younger sister. And so here's this deceiver, this conniver, and he gets deceived. What goes around comes around. You don't get away with anything. Now, uh, what do we make of this story? Well, let me make a couple of observations. Number one, Joseph was the favorite. You might say he was the chosen of his father to be his favorite. So one of the observations I would make is very, very simple. The chosen are often hated. The privileged are often hated. And in some cases, very often, they are hated because they are chosen. The chosen get hated because they are chosen. I think that's one of the spiritual truths in the New Testament. Jesus said, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. And then he says, and if they hate me, they're going to hate you. The world hates Jesus Christ. Have you figured that out yet? They hate him. They don't want anything to do with him. They're trying to kick him and any form of deity out of the public sector of life. And in being identified with Jesus Christ, they will hate you. So it just goes with the territory. I think that this story illustrates that. But I think there's two other things here that are even more significant for us. And one is this. God is providentially working. God sometimes works supernaturally. He just does a miracle. Bam! It's instantaneous. At other times... He works providentially. It's not as dramatic. It's not as instantaneous. 
The idea of providence is he works through natural means and he works behind the scenes. And that's what's going on in this chapter. I've already hinted at what's coming, and that is a famine. So at this early date, God is already preparing to feed the family. He's already preparing that when this famine that he knows is coming arrives, he will have put in place somebody to provide food for the nation of Israel. That's the providence, the providential working of God. So this story indicates you may not see it, you may not understand it, but God is working. God is working behind the scenes. God may be putting things into place that you could never imagine that you will find out about later. Now let's probe that a little bit. What does he have to do to get this done? You see, what he's going to have to do is get Joseph to Egypt. He's going to have to get Joseph put in charge so that when the famine comes and the family comes to Egypt, Joseph's going to be in a power position to feed the family. All right, how does God get that done? I mean, he gives Joseph a dream. And they hate him. They hate him not just because of the dream, but because he's the father's favorite, and maybe because he tattled on them. Who knows? They hate him. Think about this. They hate him. They sold him. God used the hatred and the deception and the selling into slavery to get his will done. Does that boggle your mind? God used the hatred. God used the envy and the jealousy. Now, I want you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 76. Psalm 76. This is an incredible truth that a lot of times gets passed over. Psalm 76, and look at verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Fascinating verse. People can get angry. They can be filled with hatred and jealousy, envy, and God will turn around and use that for His praise to accomplish His will. In Incredible. Now, let me mention one other thing. The verse that you've heard many times. You don't have to look at it, you know it. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now that verse does not say all things are good. Was it good that he got thrown into a pit? Was it good that he was hated? Was it good that he got sold into slavery? Wait till you hear the rest of the story. It gets worse. Ends up in prison. 
gets in, ends up getting framed. Is that good? No. What the verse says is all things work together for good. Now, what's the good? What's the good? Well, if you look at that passage in Romans 8 carefully, what you will discover is the good is that we be conformed to Christ. God allows all these devastating things to come into our life, and if we respond properly, he will use them to conform us to the image of his Son. So, my point is simply this. The chosen are often hated because they're chosen. And secondly, God providentially, behind the scenes, works to accomplish his will. So I started out asking, all right, then uh, how do you handle all of that? So let me make a third and last observation. If you look at this story, in the short term, you see nothing but heartbreak and headache. If you look at what's going on in your life in the short term, you see nothing but a problem. But if you take this story in Genesis and look at it in the context of the book of Genesis, then what you will see that is in the long term, those individual pieces that were painful turned out to be used of God for his purpose. So if you miss everything I'm saying tonight, hear this. The way you handle hatred, the way you handle envy and jealousy, the way you handle being mistreated, the way you handle the bottom falling out. Did the bottom fall out of Joseph's life? Absolutely. How do you handle it? Well, if you look at the immediate, you see a problem. What you need to do is back off and get the big picture and see the purpose of God. That's the point. That if all I had was this chapter, I might be depressed. He ends up being sold a slave into Egypt. But if you see this chapter in the context of his, the story of his life, you see God used this to prepare him for future service. That was God's purpose. And he told him ahead of time what the purpose was by giving him a dream. He said, here, I'm going to give you the dream. You're going to feed these rascals. And you're going to be in a position of authority over them. He tells them ahead of time what's going on, though at that point he didn't understand it all. So, when you're going through the kinds of things I've described tonight, if you look at the immediate, you'll see the problem. If you back off and respond properly, you'll see that God has told you, not in a dream, but in his word, what he's doing 
And what he's doing is preparing you to become more like Christ and put you in a position where you can serve. So that's how you handle the situation. You see the ultimate purpose, which is conformity to Christ and equipment for service. Someone has said, ironically, by selling Joseph into Egypt, his brothers actualized the dream they sought to subvert. That's the providence of God working. People who serve faithfully as unto the Lord often experience severe persecution, but God will preserve them so that they can fulfill their God-given destiny. May I repeat that? It's the point I want to make tonight. Quote another speaker. God, I'm sorry, people who serve faithfully as unto the Lord often experience severe persecution, but God will preserve them so that they can fulfill their God-given destiny. So don't look at the chaos of the moment. Get the big picture, the long term. What is God's purpose and destiny for you? Let's pray. Father, we confess we have the tendency to just look at the problem and get discouraged, sometimes angry. So thank you for the, the insight your word gives us. That what you're really trying to do is conform us to your son. What you're really trying to do is prepare us for our future destiny and service. Father, thank you for that. Sometimes painful, but thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.